TED Audio Collective. I've been at Columbia University for over 13 years. And in that time, we've created different working groups, task forces, committees to address the needs of many of the university's constituents. A few years ago, a working group was created to focus on the needs of staff. Now, staff members at a university are the backbone of what we as faculty and students do. Staff are folks who support faculty, the deans, students, help fundraise, manage food services, do janitorial work, and so much more. You know the wonderful people I'm talking about. Well, this working group noticed pretty quickly that Columbia's mission statement actually didn't mention staff. Students and faculty were included, but staff, these vital employees, over 18,000 of them, were left out of the school's mission statement. The working group led the charge for an updated version of Columbia's mission statement, which was later implemented. But this crucial omission is an important reminder of how we can lose our focus and exclude key constituencies that really make a difference in our organizations. So how can we ensure that key groups don't fall off our radar? I'm Madhupa Akinola. This is TED Business. Our speaker today is economist Maja Bosnick. In this talk, Maja explains how we need to actively think about key populations in processes like budgeting. Budgeting is not just about allocating money. It's also about understanding who gets impacted in the things we budget for. And oftentimes, budgets impact women in ways we don't expect. Then after the talk, I'll share more insights on how to ensure key constituents like minoritized groups aren't overlooked in our organizational processes. But first, a quick break. This show is brought to you by Schwab. You're here because you like to keep a pulse on trends in technology. Well, now you can invest in what's trending in artificial intelligence, big data, robotic revolution, and more with Schwab Investing Themes. It's an easy way to invest in ideas you believe in. Schwab's research process uncovers emerging trends. Then their technology curates relevant stocks into themes. Choose from over 40 themes. Buy all the stocks in a theme as is or customize to better fit your investing goals. All in a few clicks. Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. Learn more at schwab.com slash thematic investing. Hey, TED Business listeners. We're supported by our friends at Working Smarter, a new podcast from Dropbox exploring the exciting potential of AI in the workplace. Working Smarter talks with founders, researchers, and engineers about the things they're building and the problems they're solving with the help of the latest AI tools. Tools that can save them time, improve collaboration, and create more space for the work that matters most. 
On Working Smarter, hear practical discussions about what AI can do so that you can work smarter too. Listen to Working Smarter on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit workingsmarter.ai. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Add a little curiosity into your routine with TED Talks Daily, the podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday. In less than 15 minutes a day, you'll go beyond the headlines and learn about the big ideas shaping your future. Coming up, how AI will change the way we communicate, how to be a better leader, and more. Listen to TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So I come from Bosnia. I mean, I live in Sweden now, but you don't need to know my whole life story. But the story that I do want to share is from my home country. So close to 50% of the land in Bosnia is dedicated to agriculture and farming. So the government decides to support farmers, to set up the budget, to set up the requirements for the people to receive the budget, and then to disperse the funds. So they do that, and towards the end of the process, they decide to analyze who really received these funds. And they did that, and the Ministry of Agriculture was shocked, because only one group of citizens received 90% of these funds. And those were men, men working in agriculture. So where were the women? Why didn't they have access to the funds? The Ministry of Agriculture was surprised because They didn't mean to discriminate. They knew there were women working in agriculture, right? So they went back and analyzed the situation. And the problem was, well, there were three things. The first thing is they didn't even know the gender of farmers because they've never done gender analysis before. So actually, they did know the sex disaggregation of cows, but not of people. (laughs) I will let that sink a bit, because gender is unimportant. The second issue is that the way they were distributing the funds could possibly not reach women. Why? Because one of the conditions was to get this uh, subsidy was to give out a land ownership certificate. And we know that traditionally women do not own land. And the second problem was that women didn't even know. Why? Because the information was shared at the forums that they do not participate in. But the story has a happy end, because when the ministry realized this, they changed these provisions. And with the help of gender experts from Bosnia, we now see more and more women getting funds every year. So what is the point of this story? The point is not only that we should have sex-desegregated data on people, not only cows, but it's also that we can budget fair and equitably, but we can't just run numbers blindly We need to know the faces of people that we are serving with public funds. So this is really the heart of gender-responsive budgeting, or as I like to think of it, and maybe you too, common-sense budgeting. (laughs) 
So I'm an economist. I work with public finance, so public finance and budgets. But my specialty is helping governments inject gender perspective in their financial decisions and budgets. Okay, so budgets are fairly simple, straightforward, as it was introduced. In fact, all our budgets, being it your own budgets or public budgets or company budgets, go through the four logical steps. The first step is, of course, we are calculating our revenues. In the sense of the state, it would be taxes and fees, right? The second step is budget approval. After we figure what we will do with the funds, it goes to the approval of the parliament. And then the third step, my personal favorite, is spending or budget execution. Ideally, according to priorities, not my personal favorite. And then we go into control and budget oversight. So whether we have actually spent the money as we planned, and also whether we have achieved the objectives. So in the sense of the state, it would be increased level of education, decreased level of poverty. In the sense of the company, it would be profit or income. You see where I'm going. So what is really wrong with that? It sounds perfectly logical. Well, what is wrong with that is that traditionally, in most of the countries, if not all around the world, we assume when we are planning the budget funds that we are targeting one universal, homogeneous human that will have the same access to funds, the same needs, almost. And then the situation such as this one in Ministry of Agriculture happens. Then we are surprised that our funds didn't really reach everybody. So what I want to also say here. What do we then do about that? In Ukraine, the government has analyzed close to 300 budget programs. And when I say budget programs, these are expenditures in health, education, sports, infrastructure, defense, anything you can think of that is funded with public funds. And in every single one of these programs, we have found gender gaps. We have found big gender gaps. And these gender gaps were usually on account of women. They didn't have access. And why did this happen? It happened because finance officers were just doing their job, and they were doing it really well. They were planning for economic effectiveness, efficiency, value for money. We really love value for money. Performance budgeting, medium-term budgeting, all of these very valid economic objectives, very valid goals, but we really didn't account for the needs of people that we are serving with these funds. And let me illustrate that. So we have analyzed the program from tuberculosis. So treatment of patients of tuberculosis. And you may be now asking, okay, but you know, you need to treat a patient. Why is gender important there? But when we have done the analysis, we have actually seen that 70% of the patients of tuberculosis were men. And this is, tuberculosis is a big issue in Ukraine. And these were men living in remote areas, in rural areas, working in mines. However, the preventive measures and the way they were designed, they didn't account for it. They were actually targeting those sectors, such as education and health, where women traditionally dominate, and this is fine, but they really didn't account for the needs of these men in the risk groups. And why? because gender equality was not important in the budget decision. So what I'm trying to illustrate here is that not only that we need to account for gender equality to achieve our objectives of equality, but we also need to account for it to make more common-sense budgetary decisions, more effective and efficient budgets. Because in the heart of this work is gender analysis. And what do I mean by that? 
So when we are planning as finance officers any financial or fiscal decision, meaning when we are planning introducing new tax, for example, the core is to analyze how will that influence different groups in a society. So will we have our gender gaps increased? We don't want to do that. Reduced or leave the status quo? So of course we want to reduce them. And I just want to put it here as well. In most of the countries, not all, unfortunately, but in a lot of countries around the world, we have a very solid legislative framework for gender equality. We have commitments, but when it comes to budget and finance, that's where suddenly the story evaporates. So when it comes to money, it's not really analyzed for a gender impact. So this is really important. And we do this in, as I said, three steps. So the first step is really to do situation analysis. So in our agriculture example, if we had done situation analysis and we, if we had known gender gaps in this sector, we wouldn't have been surprised. We would have known that women do not own land, so we wouldn't give this as a requirement. And we would definitely have known that we need to inform them in a different way. So this is the first step. The second step is related to my example with sex desegregation, you will remember from the beginning. So we really need to know the beneficiaries that we are trying to serve. And now you are thinking this sounds very obvious, but it's not done. And the third step, of course, is to know the procedures. How will we give this budget out? Who will have the access? What will be the excluded groups? And that's it. And now I will just share some good news, I think, is that around 80 countries around the world are working with gender budgeting. And please, if you have an interest, just see if your own country is one of them. But when I say they are working with gender budgeting, that does not mean that their whole budget is gender responsive. That would be my dream. But my personal hero is Austria. Why? Because they have gender budgeting entrenched in constitution. So that means that in Austria, it cannot happen that you have an investment project that you are doing without considering gender and gender equality. Canada, feminist government, gender-balanced cabinet, and they are doing gender budgeting, but they are taking into account needs of indigenous groups of people. So this is also something that we want to do and we have to do. Morocco, let, us, let me take you to Morocco. Morocco is working with gender budgeting for 20 years. Indonesia, with the help of the World Bank, has just analyzed their whole budget system to make it more gender responsive. And I need to take you again to Bosnia because I did start with that example. Balkan countries are doing fantastic work with the help of UN women. So there is a lot of work happening. And I'm now coming to an end because you might be now wondering, okay, but what is in it for me in a sense? You are talking about public budgets, but I work in a company or NGO or I'm self-employed, doesn't matter. So what is it, why is it important for us? Because this is our money. These are our budgets. We are filling these budgets. It's not some abstract money out there. So we have the right to demand it to be equitable, to be fair. That's one thing. So it is important for the countries. It's important for the companies. Of course, we should ask who is making decisions, whose needs are being satisfied, and also maybe families. But who really has the voice, who is making decisions. It's interesting just to see and then to uh, maybe be surprised as these ministries or not. So if you are interested, you are literally one click away 
And I'm aware this sounds like a sales pitch, but I am selling you the work of many, many gender budgeting experts around the world who have been for years working with these concepts. So you have such a wealth of material from UN Women, IMF, different scholars, World Bank, Swedish government. Doesn't matter, I will not go into all the wealth of materials. So it's all out there. And if we do that, we will have the budgets that will not only lead to gender equality, which is amazing objectives in itself, but we will have better, more effective, more efficient, more fair budgets. What's not to like? So I hope next time we meet, this type of gender-responsive budgeting... Support for TED Business comes from Odoo. What's Odoo? Well, Odoo is an all-in-one management software with apps for every business need. Odoo has apps for CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, manufacturing, and everything in between. And they're all in one easy-to-use software. And the best part about Odoo? All Odoo apps are integrated, helping you get things done faster and more efficiently. So when you think about business, think Odoo. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash tedbusiness. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash tedbusiness. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Go 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more. What I love about Maja's talk is that she highlights how in processes like budgeting, we miss a fundamental point that how money is allocated deeply impacts women in ways that aren't obvious. And there are so many other non-obvious things we lose sight of in our workplaces that deeply impact populations that matter. For instance, who is represented in your Zoom meetings? What is the race and gender makeup of the people in all those little squares? Have you ever paid attention? Probably not, because they all look like you. But imagine what a Zoom meeting is like for someone who's part of an underrepresented group. As a black person, the first thing I do is scan those faces in the squares to see if anyone looks like me. I mean, I do this in any meeting, on Zoom or in person, but it wasn't until the pandemic that I realized how much of an effect it had on me to be in spaces where people looked like me. As you know, the pandemic coincided with a national racial reckoning, which meant I had a couple of Black-only Zoom calls. These were meetings, for instance, with my Black students at Columbia Business School, or with Black academic colleagues, or with my Black friends, because we needed Black-only spaces to discuss what we were all feeling and experiencing at the time without having to code switch without having to wonder if we were offending anybody. 
And I remember on one of those calls, I just teared up because I couldn't recall being in a Zoom meeting where everyone looked like me. It felt really special. I felt like I was surrounded by family, which I needed especially during this emotionally trying time. And it dawned on me that many white people or people who are well represented in organizational spaces have experiences like this every single day. They don't need to scan the room. They might not notice the racial or gender disparities in a meeting. So for everybody, next time you're in a Zoom meeting or physically gathered in a room, please try to identify which groups are missing so certain groups don't get left out. Doing this regularly opens up our eyes and our hearts in ways that allow us to be inclusive not only in our workspaces, but also in many other domains. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Brittany Brown, edited by Alejandra Salazar, and fact-checked by Julia Dickerson. Special thanks to Michelle Quint, Corey Hagem, and Colin Helms. I'm Madhu Akinola. Talk to you again next week.